1: Today is Wednesday, October the 18th, 2017, and it's live, it's not Memorex, it's actually Memorex, if you remember the old thing, because it is recorded, but it is a new show, it's not like yesterday where I did a rewind. I wanted during my intro today to tell you a little bit about why I did a rewind yesterday and why you're probably going to get a rewind on Friday. I haven't decided yet, you might get a rewind on Thursday, tomorrow, and then at the Expert Council show Friday, because I can do that, and maybe that's better to do because... It'll make use of all the work the expert council's done for me. I'll tell you how I'm going to make that determination. Tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm going to look at the amount of responses from expert council members and see if I have sufficient uh, expert council responses to do the expert council show on Thursday. If I do, I will run a rewind on Thursday and do the expert council show on Friday. If And I'm not sure because I'm kind of really busy this week, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. Uh, but if I find that I've had too much piking going on in the council, and I do not have enough material, I will do a Thursday show as usual and a rewind for Friday. So that's how I'm going to make that determination. So what's going on this week? Well, a lot of prep for the workshop. I put some pictures up on Facebook of Dorothy and I making meatballs this weekend. feel like, I, I, I thought the workshop wasn't until like the, the second week, third week of October, or I mean November, or something like that. You know, It is. This is when it starts. You see, this is the time of year when everybody looks at our workshop and sees it sell out in a day or two. Realizes how many people are coming and what we'll we charge, and all and they say, "Jack's a genius." But this is really the time of year. This is what, what 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 October and November really are for Jack. They're the time of the year when everybody thinks I am a genius at marketing, but I work harder than the rest of the year combined, and I make about a dollar seventy-five an hour. That's, that's That's what it comes down to. And on top of all this, I decided that, like, you know, I just need to make sure that I don't snap my cap by the end of the year before the holidays get here and I slow down. So I need a decompression. And an opportunity came up to go hunting at a place I've been hunting many times. And I really, really like the people that run it called the West Kerr Ranch that's down in South Texas. So Friday morning. Very early, before the rooster crows, my my big giant truck will roll out and ramble down uh, to the the Kerr County area of Texas, which is sort of kind of west, by northwest of San Antonio. A good five, six-hour drive for me, probably, even though Google says it's like four and a half, because, well, I know the roads that you have to drive to get there. So I'll be hunting Friday and Saturday, and hopefully I'll be coming home Sunday morning, If I haven't tagged out by Sunday morning, I may do a set on Sunday morning and come home Sunday afternoon. And uh, I'm just going down to shoot some meat deer, some does, and uh, they have a a coal hunt special down there. Uh, This place has been so well managed by three women, by the way, for so many years that they actually need more does harvested than they can get their buck hunters to harvest. And so they get these conservation permits from the state, So that means I get to go down there, shoot two deer, uh, and come home, bring those deer home and and have high-quality protein from them, and I don't even have to put them on my license tags. I get conservation tags from them. So I still have, depending on where I hunt in Texas, the ability to shoot up to five more deer on this license. So that's a pretty good deal. So uh, I I had to take that up, especially being that I've hunted with these folks uh, probably four or five other times before. And uh, they're really great. It's called the Canna Ranch, and they're run by... Uh, a lady who's uh, widowed to the original ranch owner whose name was, I think, uh, Bob or Robert, um, if he went by Bob and was named Robert, and uh, his his wife, or widow at this point, uh, Barbara, uh, runs it uh, with uh, two daughters. Uh, Kelsey's the one daughter, and I can't think of Ashley. Kelsey and Ashley, these three great gals run this ranch, and they run it as a, as a cattle ranch and a hunting ranch, and they do a fantastic job, and that really doesn't have anything to do with anything other than I thought you might be interested in it. All right. So yesterday, what I do? I made uh, 10 gallons of apple cider yesterday. Uh, I made up about 12 pounds of biltong, which will come out to be about like two pounds of biltong when I was to dry it out. Um, and that'll be getting hung up today. And hopefully, I will avoid eating it, and it will also be here for the workshop, we bagged up—I don't know—three gallons of uh, squash and onion and apple soup that we made for the workshop. I redid the lighting in the quail aviary and finished up some other projects that need to get done so everything is, you know, decent around here. So uh, I was very busy yesterday, t- taking that day off, and I was supposed to uh, get all my gear together for this hunt, which will probably happen this evening or tomorrow morning. Now. Uh, because a, a neighbor who writes under the uh, the pen name Doc Hansen, who has a single book out so far, came by and said, "Can you help me figure all this internet marketing stuff out?" And this dude's in his late seventies. Uh, he was a uh, Navy corpsman, did two tours with uh, Marine Recon in Vietnam. He's been a hell of a neighbor, and you know, with, how do you say no to it? 80-year-old man who wants you, your help in getting his books out there. He's writing books about the, the world of piracy and intrigue in the 1600s. Pretty cool shit. So that ate up like two hours of my time because you just don't tell a neighbor notice to something like that. I, I actually hooked him up with Nicole Sauce on getting a, a website developed and things like that. So hopefully that worked out. And uh, I made the most productive use of the day yesterday that I could. So I had to leave you with a rewind. And that's kind of sort of some of the things that happened while that was going. Also, I had to make a run to the store for some materials and stuff like that. So, anyway, that's why you got a rewind yesterday. Uh, today, of course, we have our interview. Our interview is going to be with a dude I really like. His name is Dr. Ken Berry and uh, that is medical doctor Ken Berry. There are different types of doctors. As a medical doctor. He's a really cool guy, and he has a new book that's like on the verge of coming out. We tried to schedule him so that his book would be available when he was on the air. I always try to do that with authors that have a, a book coming out, but it looks to me, from what I can see online, like his book's not out yet. You can get the first chapter free. I do have a link in the show notes for that. It's called, it's called Lies Your Doctor Told You. And um, he has become very much along the school of thought of primal, paleo, you know, protein-based, protein-fat-based diet, low-carb, call it whatever you want to. And he's done that because, well, he was always in great shape. He went through medical school, got into his practice into his 30s, and one day looked in the mirror and said, gee, Ken, you're fat. Well, what the hell are you fat for? And so he did all the things that medical doctors are are told to tell their patients when they're getting fat and when their their lab results are going the wrong direction, and everything got worse, which was high-carb, low-fat, and exercise more. And he was working out an hour a day, doing all this shit, and everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And he discovered things like the old Atkins diet and some of the new stuff uh, with, with paleo and primal, and just thought about it, divorced for a few minutes of his bias that was put into him through medical school and pharmaceutical representatives and said, does this make sense? Does this make sense? And the answer was, of course it makes sense. It's how human beings ate until the dawn of agriculture, which is the majority of time human beings have been here, and it's probably the way human beings should eat. He tried it on himself first, something i like to see more doctors do. You're going to tell your patients to do some shit, do it yourself, and, and get some experience with it, and it worked. And he, he's gone out and done more research on this, and he has pretty much divorced himself from the rest of his colleagues and is dedicated to telling the truth. And the way, one way that you tell the truth is by exposing lies, and there's a lot of them in the medical industry. That might sound like a harsh word. You'll hear why he uses it in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was from history. We are still in the year 65. Last main episode, we talked about Nero killing his wife. Well, now there's a conspiracy. Except this teaches us something about the word conspiracy. Conspiracy doesn't mean it's all bullshit made up. Conspiracy means that people are conspiring together. Think about that. The next time somebody writes something off as a quote-unquote conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy by David Verne. Italy and the provinces have been ruined by Nero spending policies. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So a politician spending money that the country doesn't have. No shit. Okay. Anyway, back to it. Including rating not only the temple donations, but also the statues of gods. Gaius Piso was a well-liked senator who, during the reign of Caligula, was forced to divorce his wife after Caligula wanted to marry her. With discontent for Nero growing, especially in the Senate, Piso finds himself at the center of a large word-of-mouth conspiracy to assassinate Nero that includes senators, military officers, servants, slaves, and even Nero's advisor, Seneca. The amazing thing is that so many people of different ages and social standings were able to keep it secret, but eventually it was betrayed. A freedman named Macellus. Uh, was heard complaining that since he was out of favor with Nero, his career wouldn't move forward. He was approached by the conspirators, and after being told about it, he went to Nero to regain the emperor's favor. With the plot exposed, several of the conspirators committed suicide, including Piso and Seneca. Nero locked down Rome and reinstituted the treason trials. At least 41 people were accused of being part of the conspiracy, and most were exiled or executed. Even though, my take by David Verne, even though the Senate was almost completely irrelevant in Roman government at the time, there were two groups of senators that still cared about ruling. The ambitious senators and the senators who believed in good government. Nero's reckless spending and favoritism angered both groups, resulting in the conspiracy. Nero reinstituting the treason trials was a step that both Tiberius and Caligula had taken, and it only resulted in their downfall. And I think we're very close, very, very, very close to seeing, well, that's all about to happen again as we careen toward the year of four emperors. I'll let you figure out the mayhem that that means, and we'll talk about it when we get there. I actually wanted to take a little bit different of a take in looking at this today. I want you to think about something. So I think when you look at the history of Rome and this type of thing happening, emperor after emperor after emperor, with some stability and, 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 I guess, decent ruling in between, you may wonder why, and I would say that it's inevitable. First, we're going to start out with power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you give somebody, especially a young somebody, this kind of power, it is going to go to their head and they're going to believe that they can do whatever they want, and they're not going to listen to people that explain to them why it won't work. But there's another thing at play here that's not directly their fault. It's indirectly their fault because they, they make their own bed, so to speak, or in this case their own grave. You might wonder, as you look at some of these and go, wow, you can see where this is going. The guy that's in charge has to see where this is going. Like Like, Nero has to know that he's headed for a point that he's going to end up dead. And he's not going to end up dead because... Somebody is going to poison him or whatever. He's going to end up dead because everybody's tired of his shit. They're absolutely done with his shit. And sooner or later, they're going to kill him. And even this treason trial is just maybe kicking the can down the road a little bit, trying to eradicate some of the many people that want him dead. He knows. He's got to know that at some point, if this continues, his own legions are going to turn on him and just spear him to death and throw him in the streets. He has to know that. So you might ask yourself, Why would not an emperor, in this type of a position, before it gets there, say to himself, Self, why don't you take a whole bunch of money that no one will fault you for, and resign as emperor, and haul ass to some far-flung corner of the empire, and put a little farm in or something like that, and just go on about your merry way, and basically say, y'all can have this. This isn't for me anymore, and I don't want to be the emperor. And you might think it's because the lure of power is too strong, and I'm sure for some of them it was. But let me tell you something, that that option B right there, not an option. See, the way things worked back then, and this is why so many people were killed when like, a wife was killed because she was a threat, or a son was killed because he was a threat, or a brother was killed because he was a threat when the emperor died, sometimes not even by assassination, sometimes just like, fell over and died of old age, and there was going to be a power struggle and immediately during the vacuum, the people that they were considered undesirable to take the throne, the represented a threat, were killed. As long as that emperor, no matter who he was, Nero or otherwise, existed anywhere, they represented a threat to whoever was in power, whoever would become in power, and must be eliminated. So when an emperor backed himself into this corner, treason, trials, and the like, were the only play left. It wasn't that they hadn't studied history. It wasn't that they didn't know where it led. They knew exactly where it led. It was an attempt to do what anybody does who's diagnosed with a terminal Ill- illness. At least last longer than they are prognosed to live. You know, a guy that's told he has cancer and is told, well, you got like eight months to live at best and goes into some regime and whatever, as long as he has some quality of life in it and emperor had a pretty good quality of life, who lives like three and a half, four years when he faces his eventual death, He's going to say, shit, I wish I wasn't going. But he's going to see those three extra years or two extra years or whatever it was as a gift. And I think in many cases, you have emperors at this state in their careers. They know the end is near. And they're acting like terminally ill patients, willing to use whatever chemotherapy, Hail Mary, is possible to try to beat the odds. Or at least to try to, you know, forestall the inevitable. And that's a pretty good introduction for our special guest today, since he is a medical doctor and wants us to teach us wants to teach us today how to do things like forestall death, you know, make it take longer before we get there, or have a better quality of life along the journey. Uh, his name is again Doctor Ken Berry. Doctor Barry has practiced family medicine in a rural Tennessee town for over a decade. During that time, he has been uh, collecting lies, lies told to patients by doctors, perhaps well-meaning but unfounded in either science or research. Lies My Doctor Told Me is the book to be released sometime this October that documents these medical lies. Although board certified as an allopathic physician in family medicine, Dr. Dr. Berry's practice has grown into a functional practice focusing on prevention and optimization of health. He's here today to talk to us about lies the doctors tell us, why they tell us those lies, and what we can do to improve our own health. And with that, man, Dr. Barry, welcome to the Survival Podcast. All right, folks, and with that, I want to say, hey, Dr. Barry, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
2: Hey, thank you, Jack. It's a great pleasure to to be on your show.
1: I'm I'm happy to have you here. I'm really excited about this interview. Um, I'm a big fan of many of the things that you talk about, and I I listened to a few of your things today where you've done other interviews to get a feel for it, and I I know we're going to have a good time here. But what I always like to do to get my audience kind of connected with the guest is uh, ask them kind of like the, the, the personal question. Like, let's go back to like you're sitting in high school trying to figure out what, do you, what, what you're going to do with your life. Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor, and, and how did you, you know, decide to do that? And kind of what was your path to becoming an MD?
2: So it's very, very interesting question I don't think anybody ever knows that they want to be a doctor. I think they think they want to be a doctor, but uh, I actually I talk about this in the book. Unless you grew up in a household where one of the parents was a doctor, you, have, you literally have no freaking idea what it even means to be a doctor or to live the doctor life. You don't know. All you know is the TV shows that you saw, and I'm not going to name any because it might date me. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if you if you if you watch Grey's Anatomy and and you watch ER and you watch, you know, back in the day, Trapper, John and B and MASH. House. Then you thought. Yeah, house. Exactly. You thought you knew what it meant to be a doctor and you wanted to be that thing. So most doctors went through the first half of their life dreaming about becoming something of which they had absolutely no concept of what it meant to be that. Does that make sense? No. That's just, and you're like, now that you say mentioned, you know, since you say it like that, it's like, what well, you guys are kind of crazy to even start with, <laughs> to even want to be something that you don't even know what it means to be that. But yeah, since my youngest recollections, early adolescence, that's all I really thought about being. And I got sidetracked for a minute because when I entered puberty, I had terrible migraines. And that's back before that was really a mainstream thing to have. And so my... Grandmother took me to the ear, nose, and throat guy, and he said I need to see a psychiatrist. He thought I was crazy. And because I would just have these periods, I had to go to bed. I couldn't do anything. And I thought, well, I can't be a doctor because, you know, they never sleep, and and you're up all hours studying or doing surgery. I can't do that because if I don't get eight hours of sleep, I can't function. Mm -hmm. And so then as I went through my teenage years and, and early 20s, that went away. And so I still have them, but they're very minor now. And so I was able to get back on track. and, and, you know, get back in the pre-med track, and finally here I am.
1: Very, very cool, man. So um, I want to real quick before we we move on, you keep mentioning the book. I was was checking around today, and we always try to schedule authors to where, like, when there are new books coming out, it's available. Is your book available yet or not? Because I wasn't able to find it online.
2: No, not yet. I just got my proof copy in the mail today to go through, and so by the end of this month, it will be available, and uh, if, if anybody, if any of your listeners want to get on the mailing list so that they're notified, I'll give you the link so they can do that. But uh, it, it was supposed to have been up and available the first of the month, but then when I got the first proof, it was like, no, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. We have to change the following. <laughs> I know, I know all you know about that.
1: things that are supposed to be. Um, anyway, <laughs> exactly. I've already, I've already uh, I, I did locate on your Facebook uh, profile where you have the thing where people can fill it out uh, to get notified exactly. about the book. And get the first exactly. chapter for free, so I've already got exactly. that in the show notes, so people can come on by the the site, look up today's episode twenty one oh two, and get that link and get the first uh, chapter of your book, and that'll help them understand some of the things that we've been talking about today. And then they can get your book when it comes out because I'm like, I want to read this book. Like I'm at a point in my life where reading a book, I have to want it to read it. I really have to want it because yeah. I only have so much time. This book I want to re- I want to read, man, because lies your doctors told you. Yeah, I uh, yeah. I, I think there's a few. And uh, what I'd kind of like to lead off the interview with is why do you call what is really I guess you'd say inaccurate advice a lie? Like because I don't usually think of it that way. Like like the doctors being this lying conniving asshole, right? They wants it wants to hurt me. I usually think of it like this guy's a Dumbass. I mean, I hate to put it that way, because <laughs> doctors are usually right. smart people, mm-hmm. right? But like, I just hear listen to what doctors exactly. say and go, I know why you're saying that, but you're
2: just wrong.
1: But you say it's flatly a lie.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, here's why. If if I go to my hairdresser to get a haircut, and she says, you know, Doctor Barry, you really should eat more whole grains. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I ta- and I take her advice, and I do that, and I gain twenty pounds. I have no recourse against her. She's not a medical authority. She has no, I I was, I was dumb to listen to her. I shouldn't have taken her advice about diet and nutrition because she's not considered an expert in the area. And she also doesn't put herself out there to be an expert in human health and nutrition. She's a hairdresser. And so I take her advice at my risk. But when I go to somebody who's a licensed and hopefully board certified medical doctor there's an implication there, both implicit and explicit. Hey, I'm an expert on the the health and care and maintenance of the human body. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and so and so therefore, a doctor should be held to a higher standard when it comes to medical advice, nutrition advice, health advice, prevention advice. And so I don't get to just say, oh, you know, I, I heard on the news you should eat more whole grains, and therefore you should probably do that. That's a uh, that's a lie of, of omission. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, yet I'm going to give you advice. And so a professional, a licensed professional, doesn't just get to roll the dice and give you random advice that they read in Time magazine or saw on CNN last night. We don't get to do that. We either have to know what we're talking about or refer you to someone who does. That's, that's what we're tasked with as professionals. And so many doctors just take the lady path and they're like, well, I don't know. I saw this thing on, you know, some report on the news. So yeah, okay. And everybody's talking about whole grain. So I'm just going to jump on that. I don't, I'm not going to read the research. I'm not going to do any research. I'm just going to start saying that. And the problem is, is that's what every doctor has done for the last 50 years when it came to the cholesterol theory of medicine and the whole grain and the, and the low fat. All of that was based on fallacious science that was cherry-picked, and every doctor in the country, because they were stiff-armed socially, peer pressure, just started saying that is the truth and had no idea whether it was true or not, and professionals don't get to do that. We don't get that liberty.
1: I agree, but I think it's worse than like what they saw on TV. I wish that was the problem. Um, <laughs> when, when I look at the whole thing, so I have a pretty good understanding of, of the, the, the medical industry, or as I call it, the sick and illness industry. Um, yes, there yes. are people that are that are very happy that there's more sick Americans every year, and those people make drugs and they make medical equipment to test illnesses. And if they didn't have sick people, they wouldn't have the billions of dollars that they make. So they they Absolutely. need sick people to treat. And these guys provide a lot of what you call research to doctors. A lot of times through you know people that could be on the cover of magazines. They call them uh, uh, pharmaceutical representatives. I call them drug pushers. And right. these doctors read basically the synopsis of the of the studies. And I've even had discussions on uh, studies with friends of mine who are MDs. And I've said, well, see, you read the study. And, and they'll say, eventually, when you push it, well, nobody reads the whole study. You don't have time to read every study. <laughs> we read the synopsis. I'm exactly. like, so you read the synopsis that was put together by a team at Pfizer. Exactly. Right? That's, that's what you're and telling also me. The
2: entire, often the entire study was written, boilerplate, and, and cut and pasted from Pfizer or whoever but yeah, most doctors just read the summary of a study, and I actually cover that in the book as well. Oftentimes, the summary really bears no resemblance to what the actual research proved. And so you can you can mess with a study several ways. You can just make up the research, which has happened multiple times, or you can just tweak the summary, because that's what most physicians are going to read anyway. And if you read the summary and then read the study, they don't even resemble each other. They're not even third cousins twice removed. It's and then like, how did you even get this conclusion from that research? Because it doesn't even show that.
1: Then there's my favorite method, which is data ranking. We'll just take all the yeah. data, and the data we didn't like the results, and so we just take that
2: out, and then report the data we did like. I mean that. And that exactly. And so, that's what happened with the whole fat is bad cholesterol theory of heart disease. Uh, You may have heard of Dr. Ansel Keys back in the 50s and 60s. He did this huge study where he studied people in multiple countries, and he he discovered, oh, gosh, the people, the more fat they eat, the more heart disease they have. And it was published and called the Seven Countries Study. The Seven Mm -hmm. Countries Study. I remember that. It's famous. It's world famous. Well, here's the problem, Jack. He did research in 22 countries. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but he only published the research from seven countries. So it's not called the 22-country study, because when you go back and actually look at all 22 countries' worth of research, you find that fat is background noise. It's irrelevant to heart disease risk, but that sugar is directly related to heart disease risk.
1: We'll see, and there's my point. But so that, that's data raking to the extreme. That's, it, that's Absolutely. It, that that it, is data raking. Yeah. We just rake this data out of the way, and you talk like that, people think you're crazy. Now, the reason I go down this path, I'm not being an apologist for the medical industry. If you listen to my show, you know that I'm far from an apologist. But I also am always curious as to when a doctor breaks that programming because the reason patients do what doctors tell them to, doctor comes in his white coat with a stethoscope. and I mean, you even learn in medical school, that's a a symbol of authority. That's so they they, they trust you, right? And so they've been conditioned to trust authority. My, my father-in-law, when he was losing his faculties and we needed him to do something, we could say the doctor said to do it. And no matter how much he fought us, he'd go, oh, okay, and he'd do it, right? <laughs> but then, but then right. The, the, the medical student has got to be a good student, and the good student is conditioned to authority. So you learn what Absolutely. you learn in school, and then you go to medical school, and then you go to your residency, and by the time you're done with it, you got like 14 years of your life invested in this. You've been programmed to believe this, so... You were trained in traditional American medicine with that mindset. What made you wake up, see the program, and break the conditioning? Because to be fair to doctors,
2: I don't think it's easy. No, it's very difficult for most doctors. And, and I, as you read the book and as we talk, you'll realize, yeah, he's not a normal doctor at all. I've always been a bit of an iconoclast. I've always looked, you know, when the magician was saying, hey, look here, I was looking over there. And when it came to medical school, I, things, they would say things and my, my spidey sense would tingle, but I never said anything because that was absolutely forbidden. You didn't, you didn't ever argue with the professor. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I was standing as a third year medical student with a group of maybe 20 and, and there was a, an attending in his long white coat you know the longer the white coat the more authority you have <laughs> and his was dragging the ground and so he was showing us a chest x-ray and he was showing us this pneumonia and what he didn't know is i had been an, uh, an x-ray tech for four years before i went to med school that's how i paid my way through undergrad and so he's he's pointing out this this uh pneumonia in the left lower lobe and i raised my hand from the back because i was always in the back and I said, you know, the pneumonia could have been caused by those three rib fractures there on the left. And he looked at the x-ray and he looked at me and everybody in the room. It was like literal silence. Gasp. Like, oh, my gory. God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I hadn't disagreed with him, but I had pointed out something that he had not mentioned, but obviously he hadn't saw it either. Because only radiologists and x-ray techs can see rib fractures from across the room. They just jump out at us after you've looked at thousands of x-rays. But he was like, yes, yes, Dr. Barry, that that could have caused the pneumonia. <laughs> and so at that point I was like, Yeah, I need to shut up and I don't need to say anything until I get my degree. And then maybe I can start having an opinion and that's what I did. But you're right, it for the for the normal doctor, doctors are very risk averse. They don't like risk. And that's why if there's a one in ten thousand chance of you having something, they're gonna go ahead and order that test to see if you have it. Even though I would take one in 10,000 odds at Tunica or, or in Vegas all day long, doctors don't think that way. We think, oh, there is a chance, therefore I need to check everything that needs to be checked.
1: Especially, if, the they time, have, if, they, especially if it's covered by insurance. If they that's got right. Insurance and also, for...
2: especially if they own the diagnostic center where the test is going to be done. But that's a whole <laughs> other chapter about human nature that I talk about, where it, it, often doctors are not being dishonest or devious. You just, when you put somebody with that much power, the laws of human nature are going to kick in. And you're going to, either consciously or subconsciously, you're going to feather your own nest. It's just human nature. And even if you're not consciously aware that you're doing that, you're still, when you crunch the numbers and look at it, yeah, you were feathering your nest. And that's just human nature. So, yeah, you're right. Most doctors are not, they don't think like this. They don't look for the error in the data, they just try to memorize the summary of the study completely so that they can impress their colleagues when they blurt that out. Yeah, absolutely. And that doesn't really help the patients that much.
1: And I've, I've seen that dynamic in other places. I just have to believe it's a, a ratcheted up a bit in the medical profession. So, so back to the core of that with all that going on in your life, how does Dr. Ken Berry say enough of this shit and I'm going to go a different way. How, how do you, how do yeah, you break I, that conditioning?
2: Well, I just kept, I kept seeing it and I, and I, I practice in a small town but really, I was kind of the only rational choice, choice in town. So I've seen a ton of patients over the last decade, over 20,000 unique patients. And I, I tend to keep notes. And anytime there's an outlier, or anytime there's something that doesn't make sense, I tend to make a mental note of that. And I may not have time right then to go read the research, but I always wind up finding time to read the research eventually, which is what most doctors should do, but almost none of them do do. But uh, I just kept noticing little things like I would have patients come back from the gastroenterologist and the gastroenterologist said, yeah, he told me I need to not eat seeds or nuts or popcorn because I have diverticulitis and that'll cause it to flare up. And I was like, you know, seeds and nuts are so natural. Isn't that really odd that that causes a medical condition? That's weird, right? And so I just tucked it away. And then years later, I, I actually looked it up and there's actually a huge study. That shows that that's absolute myth, that there's no truth to that at all. The things that cause diverticulitis flare-ups are smoking, being overweight, and processed foods. Seeds and nuts actually protect you from diverticulitis, but I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient come back from the gastroenterologist, who's a diverticulitis specialist, with the instructions to strictly avoid nuts, seeds, and popcorn. And that's one of the lies, that's one of the chapters in the book. And I talk about the study and it's like, and I, I don't have an explanation as to why these, I mean, some of these guys are like the the preeminent authority on gastroenterology in my state. And they're still telling patients, don't eat nuts, seeds of popcorn, it'll flare up your diverticulitis. Hmm. So I can't explain that, but I know it happens every day and all these lies are like that. It's like, dude, have you even thought about what you just told that patient? Have you researched that? Because, I mean, this study is not a small study. It's got like 18,000 participants in it. So, the, I mean, it's, its results are rock solid. It's not up for debate. Nuts and seeds do not cause flare-ups of diverticulitis.
1: you got got every, so, every specialized expert telling patients dealing with this condition not to eat something that won't aggravate it. And may in fact be a key toward correcting it. I mean, in, in reality exactly right. because exactly right. you, exactly. now you're making a shift in your whole diet. So I mean, for for this to happen, was there anything in your personal life that, that drove you this way? Did you notice any kind of your own health problems or anything that you know you did what you're yeah. supposed to do and it didn't work? Because I I see Absolutely. that all the time. I see doctors keep telling patients, you know, exercise, diet, <clears throat> high carbohydrate, low fat, and the that you see the patient actually not the guy that goes home and eats six Twinkies, I, and it says, I'm trying. No, but you see the guy <laughs> right. actually follow his doctor's advice faithfully. The conditions or the weight problem or whatever it is gets worse and worse. And then the doctor just right. keeps telling him to do the same thing. So did, did something happen to you personally that made that
2: maybe a little bit more yeah, absolutely. in your face? Absolutely, and that's part of my story. And I'll, I'll preface this story with saying two things. My grandfather... Uh, was a simple man, but he was very black and white. And he said, boy, I don't want you to lead with your words. I want you to lead with your actions. And that stuck with me. That's number one. And then number two, for all your listeners, I've been a fan of Jack Spirko and the Survival Podcast since Jack was in the car. And only longtime listeners will even know what that means. (laughs) Yeah. But I've been listening to Jack since he was in the car cussing the freaking guy that didn't know how to drive in front of him. (laughs) So with those two prefaces to this story, All through my high school and and undergraduate years, I was slender, I was athletic, I I didn't really work out, but I would play a lot, I'd play ball, I'd pick up games, whatever. I'd lift weights a little bit, but nothing serious. But I was always very slender and very fit. So I went to med school and I was still slender and fit. I got out and started my practice and, and started hitting my 30s, and all of a sudden I started getting fat, gaining weight. And it got so bad that I couldn't bend over and tie my shoes without getting short of breath. My hemoglobin A1C was going up, which is an indication that I'm about to become a diabetic. My All my numbers were going in the wrong direction, and so I thought, well, God, you know, I'm not going to be that fat doctor that walks into the room and says, now, Jack Spirico, you need to lose some weight. I'm not ever going to be that guy. That's just not in my nature. So I'm going to fix this problem in myself so that I can set a good example for my patients. So I promptly cut all the fat out of my diet. And I started eating whole grains every meal. I started eating low-fat, high-carb, tons of grains, and I promptly gained <laughs> ten pounds. And so I'm like, and so I'm like, okay, well I've got to, I've got to get active. So I started jogging every day and doubled down on the whole grains. I ate even more whole grains and didn't even look at fat, much less eat it. And I gained five more pounds. And that was my basically my what the hell moment. What the hell? I mean, I I'm this is what I'm telling people to do every day, and I'm not an idiot, and I'm not lazy. I mean, you have to be a hard worker to get to med school and to get through med school. You've got to be able to put your nose down and go after it. That's just by definition. Otherwise, you can't be a doctor. And so I'm a hard worker. I'm a smart guy, and yet I'm doing everything I tell my patients to do, and I'm getting so fat I can't tie my freaking shoe. <laughs> so that's when I said, yeah, enough of this. I've got to go back to school. And so I went and I pulled out all my nutrition notes from med school. And so I'm I'm sure your listeners are picturing this huge stack of books and tomes and notes. I could hold it all in one hand, very easily in one hand, probably with two fingers. But it was about two weeks' worth of lectures given by a New Zealander who, the only thing I remember about him is the funny way he said pasta. He said pasta. And he was a brittle diabetic, and he would tell us how he was treating his diabetes by eating many servings of whole wheat pasta every day. <laughs> that is literally what I was taught at my university medical school education in nutrition. And so I'm like, well, I've been eating lots of pasta, and all I'm getting is just fatter and fatter. So I went back to school, and I started reading. I got the typical fashionable diet books and read those. It's like, yeah, there's no help there. That's that's what I've been doing. That's not working. So I, I came upon the paleo diet the paleo solution the primal blueprint and i'm like yeah you know this ancestral diet thing that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me if we've been doing something for tens of thousands of years that's probably what we should still be doing and not listening to the corporations and so my wake-up moment was when i became that fat doctor who had to walk into a patient's room and say hey you need to lose some weight yeah and that's that's when i said enough that's it i'm not i'm not that guy and so i basically went back and got a private at least bachelor-level education in nutrition so that I could help my patients to actually lose weight, to actually lower their A1C, to actually lower their triglycerides, and actually not have a heart attack. So sure. that's how that happened.
1: Well, I, I, it makes sense to me. I remember my my come-to-Jesus moment, I guess you'd say, with the whole damn thing as I started investigating this stuff, and this goes back over 20 years, was I was reading um, Eight Weeks to Optimum Health, by Dr. Uh, wow, Andrew Weil.
2: Mm-hmm. And I yeah, remember great.
1: one line of that book that hit me like a two-by-four between the eyes. He said there is one word that you almost never hear in medical school, and it is health. Mm-hmm. And I True. was floored. He said, they True. teach you about disease and the treatment of disease, and they pay some lip service to nutrition, but when it comes to maintaining health, they almost don't even talk about it And I'm like, these are the people in charge of the nation's health,
2: and they don't know anything
1: about health.
2: That's exactly right, and that's why for the last 50 years, we've all either believed or pretended to believe the cholesterol theory of heart disease, which even the federal government is starting to backpedal away from it quietly and slowly now. Like, yeah, I don't know. Cholesterol is really not a molecule of concern. That's actually in the, (laughs) the guidelines now. Whereas before, cholesterol was the devil. Yeah. You know, and and so, yeah, everybody's starting to back away from that slightly. And that really that really pisses me off, Jack, that all of these experts, these luminaries who have led the way are going to get to back away from this scot free and not take responsibility for the thousands of heart attacks and strokes that they have caused by promoting a diet and a lifestyle and some pills that in reality did not help the patients at all. And probably killed some people,
1: too. I mean, my, my I thing with, thousands, when, yeah. when I hear about something like cholesterol, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a layman. But my, my understanding is we need that shit to produce new cells and that the human yeah. body pretty much is a completely new thing about every several months. That, that's that exactly All of right. our cells have to be rebuilt. and re, like, That's why we don't break down like a car. Um, exactly. Exactly. And so you're going to tell me that the essential molecule for my, my cells to be rebuilt, for like the, the pounds of skin cells alone that I shed every every month to be reconstituted for new cells, needs to be eliminated from my diet. That, that just sounds mm-hmm. like the most retarded thing that you could tell a person, and you have a bunch of people with high IQs that believe it. That's exactly
2: right, yeah. It's akin to a religious belief. It's not based on any fact or logic. They just choose to believe it, and then, you know, that's the hardest belief to get out of someone's mind when they don't really have any facts to back up the belief.
1: So so let's continue with the heresy, because one of the things you say is telling people to eat less and exercise is terrible weight loss advice.
2: Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Exercise is great for the human body in multiple ways. But there are, there are stacks of research that show that, that joining the gym and jogging and working out is terrible weight loss strategy. You're never going to lose weight. That, that's never going to do it for you. So all these people who've joined the gym and pay so much a month, it's a, it's a complete and utter waste of money and time. Now, and I, so I tell my patients, what I want you to do is go outside and play. If you enjoy riding a bike, buy a bike. If you want to swim, build a pool. If you want to join the gym and run on the treadmill, if that's your thing, honey, then go do it. But that's not going to help you lose weight. It's great for your muscles, great for your brain, great for great for your body in millions of ways, but it's not the key to weight loss. The the calorie deficit myth, and that's what we're currently practicing on, and that's a direct uh, descendant of fat's bad for you, right? Because fat has nine calories per whereas carbohydrates only have four calories per. And so we're taught as doctors very early on that it's the total calorie count in and then how many calories did you burn that day. So, And that's how every doctor who's not like me thinks about the weight loss thing. you got to burn more than you put in, and boom, you lose weight. It's that simple. But anybody who's actually tried to do that knows that doesn't work. That works about 0.1% of the time for, for maybe one person out of 10,000. But yet, we give that advice every day. And then, when the patient fails, which they're absolutely going to fail because we've given them a, a false way to lose weight, then we guilt them. And, like, well, you must have been eating something too much more than you thought, or maybe you just too lazy and you want to exercise. So, we put this guilt trip on the patient who we're supposed to be helping.
1: Yeah. And the reason that one's so dangerous is at least it makes some kind of sense, right? Like, because what I mean it, by that it, is if I lock you yeah. in, a, in a jail cell, and I make you pedal a bike, and I feed you 850 calories a day, you're going to lose weight because we're taking the caloric deficit to the extreme, right? Right. But what we're telling somebody, let's say they're on a diet, like a maintenance diet for them would be 1,600 calories, and we tell them that they can cut their calories, let's say to 1,300 calories, and that 300-calorie deficit is going to lose weight. Their metabolism is capable of adapting to that, and if they're feeding themselves crap, it will.
2: Wow, Jack, you're smarter than the average doctor. You understand that the human metabolism is not retarded. It knows to adjust in times of famine or times of, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, it does do that. But no doctor seems to know that. But, yeah, absolutely. So many times back before I knew what the hell I was talking about, I would tell a patient, if you, if you only eat 1,500 calories a day and you burn 1,800, then that's 300 a day. So you're going to lose a pound every, you know, 3,500 calories is a pound. So we'd do the math, and I'd be like, so if you just in three months, you're going to lose this amount of weight. And so they would leave all energized, like, boom, this is easy. One plus one is two. And then they'd be back in that length of time, and they'd lost a pound because the human body is not stupid. It thinks there's a famine. It lowers your basal temperature. It lowers your metabolic rate. It just adjusts. And all of that is terrible advice that never works. And then when they come back in, I'm going to give them that look like, yeah, I know you've been eating donuts. I know you have. It's it's all your fault. But they hadn't. They've been out there other... eating whole wheat exactly. pasta,
1: exactly. pasta right? <laughs> exactly. Whole wheat pasta. The whole wheat
2: pasta. That's And right. chicken but, breast. Yeah, and I'm going to put the guilt on them when all of the guilt was mine. And I've apologized to, to hundreds of patients for the advice, and I and I take every opportunity like this one publicly to apologize to people for the damage that I probably caused, given that ignorance unlearned, unthought-out advice, and I apologize. So what kind of shape are you in, and what is your diet like? Well, I am not at my ideal body weight, but I'm in fairly decent shape. Uh, Patients say that they would like to to have my my body shape, so I think I'm in fairly decent shape. I eat a keto-slash-paleo diet, as, as much whole food as I can, as much organic as I can. I never count calories. I never eat anything on purpose made of uh, wheat, rice, potato, sugar, any of the starches or, or grains. I never eat any of that unless it's, you know, some special occasion. I'll have a piece of birthday cake or if my friend bakes that sourdough bread that's divine, I'll have a piece of that. But I understand that's a treat. That's not food for my human body. Food for my human body is. Paleo. That's what we've eaten forever on this planet and only for the last few hundred years when the corporations have been in charge of our food supply has things made of corn and wheat and other grains suddenly become so healthy for you because that's what they make the most profit on. Wait a minute, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Sorry.
1: Yeah. 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 No, it is. It is. And it's it, it, that's actually a very ancient thing. That with the dawn of ag- agriculture and the the pharaohs and the kings and the noblemen all wanted to eat the, mm-hmm. the fatted calf and the, and the hunted pig. That's right.
2: Then you got. That's right. Con- and you leave the grain for the commoners. You got to convince
1: them that their gruel is good for them. <laughs> that, way, that way they feel good about eating it, you know? You're <laughs> exactly dur- right. During some of the famines in France, when the potato came in, and at this point the potato was actually a blessing if people would eat the damn thing, um, but people wouldn't eat the potato in France, and they were starving, and they wouldn't eat a potato, so they put out an edict that said the king of France ate potatoes every day, well, and all the people ate potatoes. And it's exactly just a, a, the mental programming of society that when authority says something's good for you, you do it without questioning it. Even though it makes no damn sense, my thing on grains is this: if you took a handful of wheat berries, never mind you got to get them off the damn chaff first and get the, the the chaff off of them and all that stuff. Just a handful right. of dry wheat berries. You throw that shit in your mouth and try to eat that, you'll break every tooth in your mouth, and that's you'll right. and you'll retch right. sick too if you manage to choke it down. Now, yeah, that tells you that that's not food for human beings. Because when we walked this, this planet for tens of thousands of years before we had grist mills, no one ate that shit because it that's wasn't exactly right. edible. So you have to then ask yourself, human food must be what we did eat. What did we eat? And we ate vegetables, right. fruits, and animals. That's, that's exactly. what we ate. And you ate fruit seasonally because unless you were in the tropics, it didn't go, it, you, know, you don't go pick an apple in, in February. You just don't do it. But you can go club a seal. And, I mean, that's that's, right. that's what people ate. And that's why when I heard, like, so my intro to that world was protein power by the Dr. Z's, the Jan and Michael Eads. And when mm. I read their scientific case for that, I went, well, this makes perfect freaking sense to me. You exactly. know, it made, it made complete sense to me. Like, this is how people ate. And if we're shocking ourselves with high amounts of carbohydrates, there's no reliable, continuous sources of high carbohydrate for hunter-gatherers in nature, the end. There isn't one
2: ever. That's right. Not you a single find a beehive,
1: exactly. You get a beehive, and your tribe will empty it in a day, and and then you're right. back to having to club something or forage for. And the tubers because they always hear the the anti-paleo people. Well, you know the the paleolithic people ate tubers. They didn't eat freaking giant Idaho potatoes as big as your face,
2: <laughs> right? They didn't <it'd> <laughs> They ate those suckers raw, and I guarantee you they were small and chewy and probably didn't taste good, but They were much better than starving to death. And that's what I tell patients about, (laughs) about potatoes and about wheat and about all that. It's like, yeah, that's much preferable to starving to death and dying. But here in America, where it's really never winter, really, you know, because the Walmart's always open. It's so you don't have to worry about putting on weight for the winter. So, you know, you have to watch your fruit because too much fruit is going to raise your blood sugar and that's going to raise your insulin and that's going to pack on pounds. It's just that simple. And so, yeah, back in, in, the, in the, you know, the, the famines in France and in, in Europe and in Great Britain, it's much better to eat wheat than to starve. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And, sure. I, and if
2: we were all starving to death here in America, Jack, I would say, hey, everybody start eating wheat immediately because we're <laughs> dropping dead here from starvation. <laughs> but as soon as starvation is no longer the issue, then you want to start eating only the best food that gives you the optimal health. And you want to be able to back that up with some sort of re- meaningful research. And as a as a health and nutrition expert, even though I, now that I think about it, I don't know if the word health was ever mentioned in medical school, at least in you know within the hearing of my ears. But we have to have rational reasons why we're going to tell patients you need to eat this, besides the fact that we saw it on the evening news or we read it in some throwaway journal w- without even reading the research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now with that and and this this. I don't know, religious cult of, of, of high carbohydrate, low fat, and then the junk food on top of it where people just don't care and eat anything. If you look at a graph from just 1980 when I was a kid, and when I was a kid, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 45, so you're probably somewhere in that ballpark. But when I was a yeah. kid, and when you were a kid, it's probably the same thing. When you went to like, you know, first, second grade or whatever in school, there might have been a fat kid in school.
2: Oh, that's excellent. Right? That's an analogy I use all yeah. the time in, in the clinic. There was the is, fat When kid. they're like, what? Right. That's right. And right. I say, okay, when you were in kindergarten, how many fat kids were in your class? And the answer is always one. zero or one. One. Always. Right. And I say, but now what did that, what did y'all have for breakfast? Well, bacon and eggs. Okay. So now when all the kids are eating whole grains, multiple servings a day. Waffles. And processed food <laughs> and waffles. That's right. But they're whole grain. It says yeah. right there on the cardboard box they came in. From the corporation, from the factory, it says whole grain. You go look at a kindergarten class, and you're looking at anywhere from twenty to forty yeah. percent obesity. Yeah,
1: in and kindergarten, you're looking at
2: one or two kids. One or two kids in kindergarten have type two diabetes.
1: Yeah, that's where I'm going with this. So that's that's my point. So if you look at a chart of obesity in our kids and and the incidence of type two diabetes. In society, they track like silver and gold, except they don't go up Absolutely. and down. They just go straight up. <laughs> like, and, and, and they're, they're five, six times their rates in 1980. And I know some of our young listeners think 1980 was a long time ago, because God knows <laughs> in 1980, I thought 1950 was a long time ago. But 1980 okay. ain't that long ago. Not that much has changed other than what we do to ourselves. And now we have, like you said, the, the 40% of the kindergarten class is fat. By the time you're in high school... Like half or more, 80, 60, 70% of the high school classes I see, you got fat kids rolling around. Adults are obese in huge numbers by the time they're in their 20s, and top two diabetes is tracking right with this. Now, I want to hear your opinion on this. I have literally gotten it's by email, but you know when somebody's yelling at you in an email, you can sense the anger <laughs> for right. saying that in 99% of the cases, People with type 2 diabetes do not have an illness. They have a lifestyle problem, and all they have to do is change what they're eating, and it will go away.
2: Absolutely. I agree with that 100%, and if any doctors are listening right now, they're going, whoa, what? Wait, what did he just say? Yeah, absolutely. Type 2 diabetes is a completely different animal from type 1 diabetes. It really shouldn't even be called diabetes because that completely muddies the water with, even for doctors of how we think about it and how we treat it. Type 2 diabetes is a disease of nutrition. It's not a medical condition of which we don't, we just don't know where it comes from. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's, we don't know. No, we know exactly where it comes from. It comes from eating too many sugars and starches which elevates your blood sugar level. And when the human blood sugar level is elevated, then the human body says, whoa, that's bad. Let me raise the insulin level to pull that blood sugar back down and to get that sugar out of this bloodstream because it's doing permanent damage to every organ which has a blood supply, which is all of them. So when your insulin level goes up, it's gotta put that blood sugar somewhere and it can store some in your liver as glycogen, it can store some in the muscles as glycogen as energy. But the majority of it, it has to store on your butt and your, and your belly as fat. That's where fat comes from. And when then, so that's step one. Then it starts to put fat in your liver. And that's bad. And there's an epidemic of fatty liver in America right now. And, and so many doctors act like, yeah, we don't really know what's happening here. We don't (laughs) know why everybody's got fatty liver now. But then the, the killer, the real problem. So you have insulin resistance when you have fat in your liver. Okay. But what's been known for almost 30 years now, maybe more, is that when you start depositing fat in your pancreas, which is where the beta cells live, which are the ones that make insulin, that's when you become a type 2 diabetic. That's, I mean, this is known hashed out medical science, but yet most doctors act like, whoa, what did he just say? I've never heard of fatty pancreas. And I've actually, I just did a video on my YouTube page about fatty pancreas and what a big deal it is and how dangerous it is. And I was doing a little research, and so I just Googled, or I, I did a YouTube search, and there's a video of a radiologist looking at a CAT scan. And he's like, oh, and you can see they've got fatty some fat deposition here in their pancreas. That's really not of any medical concern. It's just a, one of those findings you see sometimes. We don't know why that happens. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What did he just say? <laughs> he literally said, a doctor, an MD,
1: yeah.
2: said, oh, yeah, they got fat in their pancreas. That doesn't really mean anything. It's just a thing. It's nothing. You know, it's like a mole on your skin. It doesn't mean anything. And so fatty liver and fatty pancreas are where every overweight American is heading and ultimately to type two diabetes. All of that can be turned around and cured by fixing the diet. Okay. And a lot of doctors will think that that's literal, uh, you know, um, heresy to say such a thing. Oh, you can't cure type two diabetes. Well, okay. Let's think about this. You've known people who have had bariatric surgery, right?
0: Yeah. When somebody
2: absolutely. has like a gastric bypass, if they're a diabetic and they're on insulin or they're on diabetes medicines within weeks of the surgery, what, what do they have to do? They have to stop those medicines or they'll, their blood sugar will start bottoming out. Mm-hmm. So, and they never need that again unless they overeat and stretch their stomach back out. Their diabetes is cured by the gastric bypass surgery. How does it do that? Because they're able to eat only tiny portions of food, they immediately start to lose weight everywhere, but your body wants to get the weight out of the place where it's doing the most damage and is the most dangerous. So the first place the fat leaves is from the pancreas. Hmm. And then boom, you're not diabetic anymore. You're cured. Then the fat leaves from the liver, which is also a big deal. And then you start to lose fat in less important places like your booty and your belt. Gotcha. And this gotcha. is well known. I mean uh, also bariatric surgeons will make their patients fast for a few days before the surgery because morbidly obese patients have these huge livers, huge fatty livers, and that liver is like this big meat apron that just drapes over the entire yes. abdominal cavity. And so it's hard for the surgeon to do his job because the damn liver's in the way. And so they'll fast these patients for two or three days, and immediately their livers shrink. But nobody knows why they shrink from fasting for two or three days, except for me and you, Jack. Yeah. And it's because of the fat. They lose the fat in their pancreas and liver, and those organs shrink back to normal size, and that makes the surgeon's job easier. Now, of course, that surgeon would go broke if he wrote a paper saying, hey, you know, we should maybe just fast patients once or twice a month for two or three days or maybe do intermittent fasting. I think their, their fatty liver and fatty pancreas would just go away, and then they would lose weight and not be type 2 diabetics anymore. Of course, he, he will never write that paper because he would go broke and lose his know- Maserati. You
1: know, and I've, I had somebody really get in my, my shit about this because they said, no, there are people with type 2 diabetes where you just can't fix it that way. And I said, that's why I always hedge my bet and say 99%. However, I'm beginning to doubt the 1%, and this is why. This is anecdotal, but it is interesting. There's a gentleman that's a big friend of the show. He's he's uh, running his little farm up in New Hampshire. He's He's been around about as long as you have, listening since the car days. He was almost 300 pounds. He went primal. This guy was a boxer in his day. He's in boxing shape again. He's, he's down to like 215, and at his height, that is in good shape. And as he went through the whole paleoprimal shedding of things, he developed diabetes. And he's in his early 30s, so everybody's convinced he has type 2 diabetes. He fought it for over a year with dietary adjustments and things like that. And finally one day his doctor does some tests or something and says, You know what, you have early onset type one. Nothing we do nothing we do diet wise is going to change this. This is not type two diabetes. And I wonder if some of the people that are out there absolutely can and doing the right things and got themselves in shape and got everything under control, you know, could be at that transitional stage, especially if they're late twenties, early thirties. Because that's
2: absolutely that's a thing. Be, yeah. and
1: that could be that one, the majority of that one Just so I don't get another nasty email, I say, <laughs> right, exactly. that could be the majority of that one percent. I mean, I I do know. I remember a study when I was living in Arkansas it came on the, the, the um, local news station, and they said they had done a study, and they put all they did was just caloric restriction. They took like six hundred odd type two diabetics, put them under medical you know uh, observation to make sure nobody died. And they put them on a, a, a dietary restriction of 850 calories a day. And within 90 days, they had 100%, 100% no longer type mm-hmm. 2 diabetic. And that's what I'm saying. Right. You can't tell me this is a disease. A disease is a virus gets in me and is wreaking havoc, <laughs> right? Uh, exactly. Tumors growing in my, my, my pancreas or my, my, my lung. That's a disease. This is a choice, and it may be a difficult choice to change for some people because of you know psychological food addictions and things like that. But in the end, that's what it is. It's not a disease, and it's killing us. It's freaking killing yeah, people, absolutely. losing their feet in their forties,
2: you know, or, or younger miserable now. Death. Right?
1: Yeah. And absolutely. I, I try to share my
2: diabetic death. patients. It's like, dude, it's not a pretty death. You don't have a a heart attack and drop dead. Okay. You have a heart attack and then you have 10% heart function and you're, you're homebound and then you lose your foot and then you lose your vision and then all your relatives stop wanting to take care of you and they put you in a nursing home and then you sit there for another five years before you have your first stroke. Then you're, in a, I mean, it's, it's terrible, terrible deaths that we're damning these type two patient diabetes patients to by giving them the wrong nutrition advice. And then also there's a whole other story about giving type 2 diabetics insulin, which for Mm. 99% of those patients is the absolute wrong thing to do for them. And now your friend, back to your friend, he what probably happened, and I don't know for sure, of course, but probably he was overweight and had such a terrible diet for so long that he put so much fat in his pancreas that his pancreas, the the beta cells, just gave up and Mm. just died. And so that will make you a type 1 diabetic. And and many type 2 diabetics who are on insulin, they think they've become a type 1 diabetic like that. But when you check their C-peptide level and their insulin levels, they're still making buku insulin. It's just that they're so resistant because of the fat in their liver and the fat in their pancreas, it doesn't work. Hmm. And so by giving that patient more insulin, you're literally dooming them to worse obesity and worsening diabetes as the years go by.
1: Well, I agree with that. And one of the things that another, you know, like you talk about scaring people, they really got through to me. I don't know if you remember a dude named Jamie Oliver. who's a chef out of Britain. Sure. And he did yeah. two seasons of this thing basically trying to change the menus in schools in America. And the first mm-hmm. season he went to the fattest town in America. It was somewhere in West Virginia. And apparently that really kind of torqued off the people of the town because they didn't want to be known for that. Well, he didn't name you that. That's just what you are. And there was that's some right. radio DJ that was making his life a living hell, and he got him to agree to meet with him. And he had a meet at a funeral home, and he said, I want to show you something. He showed him the coffins that they're having to build now. Mm-hmm. And the guy's jaw mm-hmm. dropped, right? Because it's like, yeah. we can't fit people in a normal coffin anymore when they're dead. Right. And, and, and that's what this, it, it, you know, it's probably time to shift gears a little bit, because there's more lies than just the diet thing. But I think this is like, this is the most egregious lie of the medical industry exactly. because it's so damn easy not to do.
2: Yeah, and this is by far the most important one because this causes the most morbidity and mortality, more so than all the other lies put together. This 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 one lie, the diet, the nutrition, that's what it that's what does the most damage in America and in the I think in the western world more and more every day. And those coffins were not they're not having to build taller coffins. No. It's not because we're getting too tall from all this good nutrition. It's because we're too fat to fit in a normal size coffin. People And I'm sure the families have to pay a surcharge for the bigger coffin. I was just
1: gonna say so people are having to buy two seats to ride on a freaking airplane and two grave spots to be buried. Because the casket won't fit in a single plot. I mean, if, if that doesn't tell you we're on the wrong path, then I don't know what does. And it ain't because people are eating, you know, lots of meat and natural fats. That's not what's doing it. And you never see one of these fat-ass people like that and say, well, what do you eat? Well, I eat bacon and pastured eggs and, and steak exactly. and salad. They never <laughs> exactly. eat that. But It's never the answer to the question. On uh, some other stuff, though... Uh, one of the things that you're always told by everybody in medicine is the sun is dangerous and it causes yeah. kid cancer stay away from the sun and this is another one that you you scratch your head and go but we didn't always have air conditioning and live inside so that's we, right we, and
2: you're, you're old enough to remember when we all played outside every day every, every day, day and we every all of us got a sunburn every every year but yet when we were kids, nobody had these huge skin cancers on their face and, no. and, and hadn't lost half of their ear or all this stuff. This is a recent development. About but the only ends, thing they uh, did back then
1: is if you were out and you were a lifeguard, they put a diaper ointment on their nose because your nose would get that's right. really bad and hurt, <laughs> and the rest of them, you just didn't worry about. It.
2: <laughs> but you worried about the sunburn because it hurt. It you hurt. never that's once why. imagined they'd skin cancer. And so all of a sudden, doctors, another thing, they just started believing, and it's like, why do you believe that? And so I've really delved into the research deeply, and you can read about that in the book, but some of the research studies were done on donated foreskin tissue. That's what they would be exposed to ultraviolet light would be you know foreskins that have been <laughs> severed from their owner. So that's dead tissue, first of all, that's not even living tissue. And number one, and number two, that's not tissue that usually sees the light of day very much. But yet, we have made medical recommendations based on the research that was done on that skin. Some of some of the, the skin cancer studies were done on donated foreskins. Not a lot. Look it up. Oh my God. Then when you and so then there's multiple other studies and there's a there's a study in Lancet, which is the medical journal in Britain, which basically said we don't know why. It's kind of an outlier in the data. We can't explain it. But really, people who get the most sunlight exposure every day have less skin cancer than people who have less exposure. That's a literal statement from Lancet. And if anybody wants, they can yell at me on the Facebook page or the YouTube page, and I'll, I'll give you a link to the article. And then there's another article from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, I think, that shows that people who work inside – you ready for this, Jack? Mm-hmm. They have higher rates of skin cancer than people who work outdoors. But yet it's the sun doing this. Yeah. And so at that point I'm like, wait a minute, what? And that's kind of what my this book this is book is my wait. What did you just say? That's my this is my moment to to just do that with everything I've ever went. Wait, what? Well, I when really you see dermatologists
1: dermatologists that do their job well, checking the bottom of people's feet, checking underneath their fingers, nails, and toenails right, for signs giant, of skin cancer. Right. Well, gee, I don't think right. I, I... You know, I've got a lot of sun. And I'll tell you what, I'm a country boy. i got a lot of sun on my bare-ass skinny divot, But I don't sure, think I sure. ever got a lot of sun on the bottom of my feet. I really exactly. don't think that ever happened. So yeah. I... It, it seems to me the sun probably is not the cause of skin cancer in
2: of itself, certainly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's right. And, you know, it may be 10% of it, but what's 90%? Shouldn't we focus on that? That's, that's what I, my point in, in the chapter is let's focus on the big problem. And, again, we go right back around to something you said earlier and right back around to nutrition. Your skin cells are rejuvenate. They replace. There's, about every six weeks, you have a complete new skin on your body every six to eight weeks. So how is that damage accumulating in the DNA when that's not even the same cell? That's a new cell. (laughs) Interesting. Right? Right. Now, what? but wait a minute. What are those cells made of? They're made of what you've eaten. Hmm. And so if you're eating processed, hormone, steroid, uh, GMO, then I wonder if maybe what you're building the cells of Maybe that's the cause of the skin cancer epidemic, which if you'll plot it, it plots right along with the whole whole grain, low-fat diet recommendations. The skin cancer rate goes right up along with that. Mm. And so I'm not making any official recommendation from that chapter, and I realize that chapter is going to be controversial. And I realize a lot of doctors are going to say, well, he's a quack when they hear about that chapter. But let's all just calm down and just think about it for a minute. Big studies have been done that show that working in the sun multiple hours a day don't increase your risk of skin cancer, number one. Number two, people get skin cancer on parts of their body that have never seen the light of day. Number three, a lot of the research was done on it. Just when you read the the, the procedure, the method of the research, you're like, what? How do, How can you even try to make a recommendation based on that study? That's ridiculous. And then ultimately, our skin turnover rate is every six to eight weeks. You have a complete new skin. So how is the sun causing that? And also, we've played in the sun for so many thousands of years that our skin learned to make a vitamin from sunlight. So but yet the, the sun is the cause of all light on the planet, yet it's bad for us.
1: Well, you're not alone in this. Dr. McCullough has not only said that the sun doesn't cause skin cancer, and he's a very well-known uh yeah, shouted out as a quack, and then quietly admitted to been right. And then the next thing, he's a quack, and then quietly admitted to be right. Right, said that not only does it not over cause it, it probably in many instances prevents it because vitamin D Absolutely. is so important to our bodies, and the, about the only way we can get it, other than in a capsule, which the, you know we didn't have a couple hundred years ago, let alone a couple thousand years ago, to get it from, is right. to be outside in the sun.
2: Exactly. He's exactly right. And you're right. Multiple times he's been uh, diagnosed a quack only to be proven right. And that's happened to him many times over his career. He's he's one of the luminaries I actually look up to as to what a doctor should be. He's also
1: one of the reasons I enjoy occasionally watching one of my favorite people to hate, Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is just (laughs) a dumbass. And Dr. Oz will have him on about once a year. And admit, like, well, last year I had, I can't even believe it. Like, it's just, it's like watching a slow train wreck. Last year I had you on, and you said this, and I told you you were totally nuts. But it turned out you were right. But now you have this new claim, and clearly you're nuts this time. And, I don't know, that guy, I listen to him all the time with this whole grain bullshit. and stuff like that. Every week I have my hands in somebody's chest cavity because of this, and I'm like, Bullshit. There's no way I believe this guy's doing cardiothoracic surgery weekly <laughs> while he's doing a show right. five days a week on a network. I just don't buy that at all.
2: I, yeah, I, that, that I, makes you wonder. Oh, but my jo- God. But Joseph Mercola is what a doctor should be. He, he thinks, he reads, he studies, he researches, and if he if he can't find enough research to recommend something, then he doesn't recommend it. Or if he finds enough research that shows that something we're currently recommending is obviously wrong, then he stops recommending it. That's what doctors are supposed to do. He, he He's the poster child of what a doctor should actually be. And then when he does find something that does work, then he shouts it from the heavens and tries to tell everybody. And then he's advertising too much. You know, and it's like, yeah. okay, yeah. so I should just sit in my clinic and, and shut up and write statin prescriptions all day until I can retire. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what gonna, you I'm, do. I'm not yeah. going to do that. So, I'm not doing that. Sorry. So another
1: one of your things you say is adults probably shouldn't be drinking milk. And milk, it does yeah. the body good. It's a it's a slogan. Right. It has to be <laughs> true.
2: Exactly. And I, <laughs> let me give you a little background. I grew up being a milk baby. When I was playing football in high school, I would drink so much milk a day, probably almost a gallon a day, that my grandmother would just literally flip her crap because it's, I was I was literally drinking them out of house and home, drinking all this milk. But I was convinced that that was good for me, that that would help me grow bones and muscles and et cetera, you know, everything we, we were taught. And so I would, I would try to gain weight because I was very bony back then. And so I would drink a quart of heavy cream every day. <laughs> trying to gain weight. And now looking back now, it just makes me want to belly laugh because that's probably part of the reason I was so slender is I was drinking all that fat every day. But I would drink a gallon of whole milk and then a quart of heavy cream just about every day trying to gain weight and put on muscle and just be a bigger guy you know, because I, I was very, very skinny.
1: Because that will just take your, and your so appetite this- for the rest of the day and just bam, you, you're like, <laughs> you won't eat nothing.
2: I've, but, I've I, but I did. I would eat like a horse anyway, yeah. Over on top of the fact. Teenage but metabolism. But I just want people to understand. Yeah, exactly. I want people to understand this chapter came from the hand in the mouth of a previous milk lover. I'm not that guy with some Middle Eastern descent or some Mediterranean descent and could never drink milk. Because, you know, you always suspect them of like, well, duh, yeah, you couldn't enjoy it, so you don't want the rest of us to. No, I I am a poor Southern... Caucasian milk lover. And I still love the taste of milk and, and stuff. But I just, the more research you do, the more you look at it, just from a common sense standpoint, no other animal on the planet drinks milk as an adult unless humans give it to them, ever. And you know how life always finds a way, Jack. It always finds a way. And so there would be some weasel or some maramot or some bird that during hard times would slip in and suck the teeth of the nearest goat or cow or something a milk if vampire. that was a good choice. it would be a some milk, sort milk of milk vampire, vampire in nature. Yeah. That's exactly right. There would be something like that somewhere out there where a bat would fly in at night in the barn and suck the teeth of the cows for nutrition, but not a single animal on the planet does that. Hmm. And that, to me, is very powerful common sense uh, evidence right there. And huh, you,
1: That's you're, weird. You're giving me a flashback, so I remember... When I was, I was in grade school in the 80s, and this was when the space program was still a thing, and kids still dreamed about growing up to be astronauts, and we were studying space. And I remember the teacher saying to everybody, if you could only go to space you could only take one food with you, what would it be? And they ended, ended up the right answer with big giant air quotes around it was milk because it had everything <laughs> you needed to survive. And I've always looked at it this way. I don't know if you've paid attention to how fast a cow goes from a calf to a pretty big animal. That's what milk is meant to do or how quickly a child grows. And when you're an adult,
2: guess what you're not really doing much of anymore? Growing. That's exactly right. Unless you want to be in a, a coffin two sizes too big. So, And that's exactly what I tell my patients. And this is a direct quote of what I say. I've got this memorized. The reason that mammals give their babies milk is because mammals have a big brain and so we have to be born very early to get that brain through the pelvic cavity mm. but then as soon as we're out we're helpless because we're, we're, we're born basically prematurely to get that big brain out of the mother before we get stuck in there but then in order to ensure our survival she has to make us gain weight as quickly as possible and what substance does she use to do that with? Bacon? No. no. Not no Egg <laughs> yolks? No. No. Milk. She gives her baby milk, and she gives it species-specific milk. That's also another big, very important thing. She gives it the milk of her species, and that makes that baby gain weight as fast as possible. And so I tell my patients, look, if you want to gain weight fast as possible, be my guest. Keep drinking milk. But if you don't, then maybe you should consider not doing that. That's exactly what I tell my patients, and, and I hope that makes a little sense. It seems to to most of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense to me, and it it always has. It didn't make sense to me when I was in school. That made sense to me what the teacher said. But when I started learning about basically human nutrition is what I call it. We call it paleolithic and whatever. But Mm -hmm. it's human nutrition absent false reality. It 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 made perfect sense to me. I mean, like, because it it ain't even really paleo. It's just pre-agricultural controlled societies. That's all that it is. Like There was there was all types of different societies before agriculture and even after the you know 10,000 year old dawn of agriculture there were still plenty of very differentiated hunter gatherer and what i would call horticultural societies so exactly there there is this place in between where people Live off the land, but yet they do cultivate plants. They do, realize, oh, look, the berries grow there. Well, let's throw a whole bunch of stuff there to, to give it nutrition, even though they didn't know that's what it was. They just knew when you threw all that debris there, they got more berries next year. And oh, if we prune it back, it'll do a little bit better. And they have this kind of hybrid existence where they're living off 100% wild, but yet they're encouraging that wild growth. Mm-hmm. They're creating different exactly. habitats for different, you know, mm-hmm. from insects up to to, to giant herbivores, so that they can hunt them and gather them and and there's as much diversity in that as you could ever imagine because people say to me, Well, is shellfish on a paleo lifestyle? Well, if you lived near a river and it was full of mussels, I guarantee your ass you went in there and ate those things <laughs> right absolutely. But, but if you lived on what was the plains of America as a Native American Indian, you didn't eat those because there weren't any so you but, but the commonality was. Meat with lots of protein, and and the the myth is there's not a lot of fat and wild game. Well, what I've noticed, and not just with historical research, but what I like this show called Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmer, and he goes to all these places like Mongolia and stuff like that where they eat the way their ancestors ate at least a few times a year, just as a a, a symbolic thing. And the first thing they always eat out of like a, a goat they kill, the organs. They eat the that's liver, right. the intestine, yep. the brains. That's all They eat all that first. That's and right. the reason they do it, and this is something like preppers should get their heads around, it's really easy to preserve leg meat. Right now, honest to God, behind me I have about 15 pounds of venison hanging off a string turning into biltong. Salt, pepper, Yum. coriander... And it's, it's, it will be preserved for years if you'll know, never make it, but it would, it would last that long. I can't preserve a piece of liver that way. I can't preserve a piece of intestine that way. I can't pre- preserve a kidney that way. Well, those organs are huge in fat, so these societies were eating lots of fat, and the, the,
2: yeah, the, the lean protein was more of a survival ration. Exactly right. That's the last thing you ate. You ate the you ate the marrow and the brain and the internal organs because that's where all the fat and nutrition was. And also, I've never thought of it before, but you're right. That's what would go bad first. Yeah. So you definitely didn't want that to go to waste. So you ate that first, and then you would save the the crappy sinewy leg meat and eat that last. Yeah. And every every culture. Yeah, <laughs> so has- we think that's the delicacy. Yeah, we think that's the delicacy these days. At and every- then experts will tell you how wild game is such a lean thing to eat. And really, if you eat it properly, it's not
1: lean at all. And every culture has a way to preserve that meat, whether it's smoking, whether it's African biltong, whether it's jerky, whether it's pemmican. Yes. And pemmican, of course, yes. is loaded with fat because they melted down Absolutely. the bone marrow and dumped it into a block with with, with berries and, and, and the and the ground-up dried meat so that there'd be fat with it because they knew damn well they needed the fat. And, and Absolutely. And it, it seems asinine that we have to explain this stuff. But on that, like... So there's the thing I call department of making you sad, and that's like when you're building a house, it's the code inspector. Well, the ultimate <laughs> department of making you sad for a doctor has to be your state medical board. Do you ever worry yeah. for your heresy that they're going to come after you or something like that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Oh, and every doctor, and that's a good, valid point. And I, I have a chapter, two, my fellow colleagues. It's the last chapter of the book, and I talk about that. But, yeah, every doctor who is vocal enough about such things Will get a call, or worse, from their state medical board. And you can, and and until the tide turns, and until enough doctors are saying this, that then the medical board will just quietly go away, just like the federal government's currently pulling away from cholesterol is bad. They'll just quietly act like, oh yeah, we don't, we don't really, no, that's not really anything of concern to us, and that they'll, they'll, it'll go away, it'll stop. But until then, there will be some doctors who are caught on the gears and who are ground up. By saying the truth too loudly, that'll happen.
1: Absolutely. So, but you ain't gonna stop. That's not gonna shut you up. No, I
2: can't stop. It's not my nature.
1: Yeah, and I see it happens everywhere. I mean, that guy—I can't think of his name now. I think his first name's Mike, but like every third guy's name is freaking Mike. Gee, parents, stop <laughs> naming your kids Mike. There's too many Mikes. But uh, but he's a guy. The guy that's behind the Earth ships. He lost his architectural license over that, and mm-hmm. he just like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys figured this out. I don't need an architectural license to build Earthships. So, yeah, we're going to we're yeah. gonna have to keep on keeping on. But, I mean, with all this information we've given people today, what do you think our listeners should do with it? What, what should be the takeaway here?
2: Well, I think that you should look at your doctor as a learned partner and consultant. Definitely doctors know many, many things about how to heal the human body. If you fall off the house or you get hit by the bus, or you get pancreatitis, you need a doctor. You need to go to the hospital, and you need to let us take care of you because we're good at those things. That's my message to the layman out there, is uh, listen to your doctor. That doesn't mean you ever need to blindly take his advice because we have this thing now called Google, and we have this website called PubMed.gov, which is where doctors can go and should go but often don't go to read the latest medical research. You as a layman sitting there listening to Jack's show, and jump on your computer, and you can read the state-of-the-art research about fatty liver right now. And within an hour of reading and Googling the terms, you can look them up and see what those big, fat words mean. You can know more than the average doctor about fatty liver and its consequences. That's, and so there's a, a doctor, he's a cardiologist called William Davis, and he actually has written a book called Undoctored and he's actively prompting people to fire their doctor and just do it yourself because you have the Internet now and you pretty much can do that. I think that's a little too much. I think a lot of people still want to consult with their doctor and then still make up their own mind, and that's what I recommend. is Come talk to me. Consult with me. If you don't believe me, look it up. And if I'm wrong, then tell me I'm wrong, and I'll learn and do right in the future. But don't ever blindly accept what your doctor says is true. Or you'll wind up taking something like Zocor for 30 years for no damn reason whatsoever, okay? And so that's – and then my recommendation to doctors is, hey, guys, if you don't watch it, you're going to lose your crown. You're going to lose that white – that white coat's going to become meaningless to the average person walking the street, because more and more people are turning to chiropractic, they're turning to naturopath, they're turning to herbal medicine. And I applaud them for doing that, because doctors are twiddling their thumbs and trying to to flirt with the prettiest drug rep. Stop that. Put your thinking cap back on. We know you had one because you got into medical school and you made it through. We know you're capable of working and learning. Yeah, reading the research studies is a lot of work, but guess what? That's your job. How are you going to make recommendations about human health and nutrition if you don't even know what the hell the research says? Do your job and people will respect you. You'll be that respected, learned guy in the community that everybody looks up to that you always dreamed of being, but you'll only get to be that guy if you're right way more often than you're wrong. And in order to do that, you have to do your studying, you have to do your reading, you have to do your research, you have to think and think out loud. And you may have to be shunned by some of your colleagues. And, hey, that's okay because then next year, Dr. Oz will have you back on and say, hey, you know what? You're right after all.
1: <laughs> yeah, that guy's a tool, man. I don't know if you ever saw the thing he did with the uh, the paleo lifestyle. It was retarded. I mean, on its, on its face. He had these people live at a zoo and eat nothing but fruit. And that was his version of that, paleo. That was paleo yeah, to him.
2: that's paleo. That's paleo. So
1: they're yeah. sitting there like in an enclosure looking across at another enclosure with gorillas walking around in it so they could be paleo. And they lived there for <laughs> a week eating fruit and vegetables. And they actually all did lose weight, by the way. But they all came away mm-hmm. from it with, well, I could never continue to live this way. Well, no freaking shit. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like when I saw that, I was like, I'm done with him. But then my watch like, no, no, no. You have to watch when Doctor McCullough comes on. It's great. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you tell me when that happens, and I'll come. I'll you DVR it and I'll take a look at it. Anyway, uh, kind of last. Your your book's not out for like another probably the end of the month. I have yeah. the link where people can get. Uh, to uh, to get on the announcement list for that. I think it's going to be an awesome book. Certainly get in touch with us when it's available. We'll make an announcement on the website here as well for people. We'll do. If it's Will going do. to be on Amazon, we'll make it one of our Amazon items of the day for you too. Um, but as far as anything else, is there other ways maybe people can kind of connect with you?
2: Well, I'm on uh, Facebook and uh, more and more so I'm on YouTube and uh, I think you can just search for Kendy MD and I pretty much pop up at the top but uh, both my, my Instagram and my Facebook are Kendyberry dot MD okay and then my YouTube is is Kendy MD with no dot because I couldn't get them to put me a dot in there so <laughs> it's got to be that way. but if you just search my name you can pretty much find me. And, uh, I just want to, I just want people to understand you've got one life and this is not a video game, even though modern society often portrays it as such. If you listen to a doctor or any expert in any field and you get messed up by that because you didn't question them a little bit, you didn't Google a little bit, you didn't research that a little bit, you may very well be able to sue them and get six or seven figures in the judgment but your health is still lost. Yeah, Your health is still ruined, and you can never get that back. So go talk to your doctor and take notes and listen. And if you agree, then do what he said. But if, if it doesn't make sense to you, then this is your life. You ultimately have the responsibility to decide, am I going to do that or not?
1: I completely agree, man. Anyway, um, I really appreciate you being with us today. I'll make sure I've, I've got links to your Facebook already. I will make sure I'll add the link to the YouTube channel because I think that's people, something people would really like to see. And, uh, Ken, man, I, I appreciate you. And, uh, once that book gets out and circulating around a little bit, let's get you back on, have you fill out another guest form and, uh, uh just talk up some other stuff. And, uh, cause I think this has been a Absolutely. great interview and I, I've really enjoyed it. And I thank you for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Jack. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure. All right, man, we are
1: out, and I'm I'm, I'm time crunch today, so I'm going to jump real quick instead of chatting further, and I'm going to get this up. Should be up in about fifteen minutes because Buddy's coming to make me a martini, and I want to have one.
2: <laughs> Ooh, nice! Enjoy that martini, Jack. All right, man. It really was a pleasure. Take care. Later. Bye.
1: Uh, great interview, really interesting guy. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you will. Get on over to uh, the Facebook page I have linked to in the show notes where he has a little form you can fill out uh, for email list, and you can get the first chapter of this book early, and I'm sure if you're on that list, you'll know as soon as it's available. I am very excited to eventually read this book. Um, I think it will actually help me with a lot of material for the show going forward. And I, I do think it's the case that doctors are trained very little about the concept of actual health in medical school. and We talked about that with Dr. Berry today. But I, I, I very clearly remember reading that in Dr. Andrew Weil's book, God, I guess almost 20 years ago, that the word health is almost never used in medical school. What they focus on is disease and the treatment of disease. And that's all good and well. And there are certain things, if they're wrong with me, I want a conventional doctor to help me because they're very good at it. But if you haven't studied health and how to optimize health, how do you then study the prevention or provide for the prevention of disease rather than this the treatment thereof? And it's like trying to fix a boat, I think, many times. There's a hole in the boat, water's coming in the boat, and you've got a bilge pump running. The bilge pump is useful. The bilge pump works, even if the bilge pump, though, pumps water faster than it comes in the boat. Once the boat's dry, you turn the bilge pump off so you don't burn it up. And what happens? Water starts coming into the boat again. What do you have to do if you want the boat to really stay afloat and be sustainable? You've got to fix the hole. Health and health optimization is fixing the hole. Disease treatment is a bilge pump. That's kind of how I look at it. Anyway, guys, if you like today's show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can support us is by joining the Members Support Brigade. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get a lot of really great content and material available nowhere else. you get discounts that will more than pay for your membership. The other way you can help us is by considering doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. This is the painless way to to help the Survival Podcast. If you go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, The next time you're going to buy stuff online and click one of our links there and do your shopping from that point, find what you want. No matter what you're looking for, no matter what you buy, you will help support us. So that's just the easiest way I know. It doesn't cost you anything because I'm talking about stuff you were going to buy anyway. On that note, though, at t you'll also find a link that will show you all of my reviews on Amazon.com. And I have an item review for you today from a company called Frontier Organic. And it's lemon pepper. And I know it's like, lemon pepper, Jack, really? This is the survival. It's lemon pepper. Listen, we talked about eating paleo and primal today, and that means meat. And let me tell you something. Lemon pepper, when it comes to two meats in particular, is a fantastic ingredient. And that is pork and the other white meat. I'm sorry, chicken and the other white meat, pork. I have a recipe here for you guys today. I'm not going to give it on air because the show's kind of gone long as it is. Um, But it is my herbed chicken. And it is fantastic. I, I really don't call it lemon chicken because, I don't know, that makes me think of everybody loves Raymond and Deborah and was the only thing she could cook. And everybody makes lemon chicken. And you take chicken and you put lemon pepper on it and you cook it. And it's pretty decent. There's, there's, there's like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 ingredients plus the chicken in this recipe. But yet it's very simple And perfectly balanced. And I give you the entire formula for making it and making a little marinade go a long way. Uh, Because one of the major components is olive oil in it. And that can get kind of expensive. I'll tell you exactly how to do all that. It will blow you away. What you'll find yourself doing is what we do. You'll buy three or four times as much chicken as you need for a particular day. Because making it's easy. And you'll make it and you'll parcel it out and either freeze it or put it in the refrigerator. You'll use it multiple times so you cook once and then you eat healthy long term. Fits right in with today. And again, the uh, the product itself is made by Frontier Organic Lemon Pepper. It will save you money over buying that little stupid bottle of lemon pepper in the store. Let me tell you why you don't want to buy that. I am not 100% organic in everything I eat. I wish I was, I'm not. We all have limitations with money and availability. Okay, I grow as much as I can, and I buy local first, organic second, and conventional third. There are certain things that I will not buy anything but organic. And lemon pepper, or anything using a citrus peel, is one of them. Citrus is one of the most highly coated with pesticides crops in the world. And a reason for that is, it's relatively, comparatively speaking, safe to do so, because people generally don't eat the peel of a citrus plant, and it's very, very thick. So you can spray it and have the food part, the orange or the lemon or the lime, be relatively free of pesticide. Not great, but nowhere near like when you spray a pepper or a tomato. You got it? Okay? But... Lemon pepper is the rind of the lemon, and if you're using conventional lemon pepper or conventional rind of anything, you're, you're, you're eating something that's literally coated in pesticides. So when it comes to lemons, limes, oranges that I'm going to use in my own cooking, where I'm going to use the rind or the peel, zested or whatever, I go organic, period. And I can't grow my own oranges here, I tried, too cold. And the same thing with any kind of a lemon pepper or prepared rind. Organic, 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 because even though it ain't perfect, it ain't drenched in pesticides. Now you know. And again, tspass.com for your online shopping. Help us your Bible podcast, even though you're not spending a dime more than you were going to spend anyway. Really, really cool way to help us. All right. Last up, I have a song for you guys today. John Adams selected for us. It's called What You Leave Behind by Delp and Judo. Okay. Now, who are Delp and Judo? These are actually two of the guys from Boston. Gudo or Judo Gudo, I don't know how to say his last name, uh, was the lead guitarist, and Delp was the lead vocalist for Boston, and um, that's of course Barry Gudo and and Brad Delp, and these guys go way back. They actually were working together before Boston. They worked together after Boston, and they released an album called Delp and Gudo in two thousand three and What You Leave Behind was the lead song on it, and it's pretty badass. And I wanted to give you some of the lyrics today, but then I wanted to talk about Brad Delph a little bit and how that kind of applies to our lives and this song. So here's the lyrics to this. It's a constant revelation ever-changing over time as we chart our destinations, take our places on the line. where we put here for a reason part of someone's grand design, or does the answer come from living, taking one step at a time, and we build on our traditions, taking hope in what we find, and we strengthen our positions on what's been left behind, so what that's saying is basically, the opening is the, the grand question, is this creation of ours an accident, or is it a grand design? And what part do we play in it? And no matter what that answer is, though, as we go forward, we have to do something with our lives. So we build on our traditions, which is a way of saying what we do now, we do by taking forward. That's what was handed to us like a baton in a race. Whether it's our grandparents or our parents or our family or even just our community around us, we strengthen our positions. We try to become a little bit better every generation. ...on what was left behind for us by those that came before us. Back to the lyrics. It's a constant education in a world of give and take. Along the way sometimes we stumble, but we learn from our mistakes. Always looking for an answer to find the reason in the rhyme. There's a million burning questions, and we keep looking for a sign. And some call on intuition... Some call on the divine. In the end, it doesn't matter. It's what you leave behind. So we're back to that commonality again. We all struggle, and we all have different ways of addressing that struggle. We all have different ways of trying to get past it. We all have different things that we call on, whether it's the beauty of nature, whether it's the the intuition of science, whether it's a belief in something divine. In the end, we're still back to all being the same, and it's all back to what we leave behind for the next group. Back to the lyrics, and some call on inner vision, some call on the divine. No matter what the inspiration, there's always something on the line. I think it, like that actually makes me think of a, of a kind of a funny movie, right? Men in Black, right? Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, and right when Will Smith's character finds out about all this crazy alien shit, he's flipping out. He's like gonna run off, just half cocked at everything. And Tommy grabs him and it's like, chill out, right? And, and 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 Will's like, hey, you know, there's like a, a an alien battle about to destroy the whole planet. And and Tommy Lee Jones is like, there's always a group of aliens about to destroy the planet. And the only thing he sees people together is they don't know about it. And that might seem like it's not related to this at all, but there is always something on the line for us. And it's up to us to decide whether we are going to take that as something to panic about or something to do something about. Because those are really, there's three choices. We can panic about it, we can do something about it, or we can do nothing about it. And if it's really on the line and it really matters in our lives, if we do nothing All we are is doing what I said Nero might be doing, deferring the inevitable. Sooner or later, we're going to have to do something about it or panic about it because the consequences will become more real. But there's always something on the line. So when we have something going on in our lives that we see as a struggle or a challenge, we can't think, well, like, oh, man, you know, this is like, it's not different. It's just another one. It's just another one to do something about, because that's always the right answer. Do something if you can and if it matters. And if it doesn't matter, do nothing and move on to something else. So finishing up, so don't squander what you're given. Make the most of precious time. Life's not only for the living, it's what you leave behind. What you need to do today is not just for yourself, but for those you leave behind. It's ironic. Because Brad Delp died not long after this. This was released in 2003, and he died in 2007, just four years later, at the age of 55. And unlike many tragic deaths of great musicians, um, Brad Delp did not die of something that couldn't be avoided or couldn't be prevented. He didn't even die like George Harrison of lung cancer caused by smoking that could have been avoided, but after a certain point could not have. Delp took his own life. He uh, lit charcoal grills in a bathroom and closed the door and piped a, uh, vi- a dryer vent tube from his car into the same room and asphyxiated himself with carbon dioxide. He left behind several notes to several individual people that we do not know the contents of, but we do know the overall note that he left behind for everybody. It was very brief and very sad. It was, and I'll do my best with French, Mr. Brad Delp, Yurin Joraine, un, am, solitaire. And that might be Latin, I'm not sure what that is, but, Joraine, uni, ami, solitaire. What it means is, I have, a lonely, soul. I have, a lonely soul. He took his life, because despite all of his success, all his money, all his riches, in the end, having married and divorced twice, he was lonely. And if you've ever been lonely, gotten through it, you might wonder how that's the case. But I think it's like a lot of things. What if it never ends? What if it never ends? Imagine you're suffering from a disease that causes pain. The pain is somewhat bearable, but it's intense enough to disrupt your life but it never goes away. No matter what you take, no matter what you do, it won't go away. It's always there, and you can't live. So at some point you might decide you're not going to anymore. The thing is, there are diseases like that, and they're sad and tragic, and we can understand when a person reaches the end with one of them. You can always do something about loneliness. You can always do something about loneliness. It's up to you. And I really wish that Mr. Delp had listened more closely to his own words from this song. It's what you leave behind. Because when you leave before you're finished, you don't leave everything behind that you should have. Think about letting your, your lives, my friends. You only have so much time on this earth. Make the most of each moment. And that means living it fully until the end. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: It's a constant revelation Ever-changing over time As we chart our destination Take our places on the line Part of someone's grand design But does the answer come from living Taking one step at a time In a world of give and take Along the way sometimes we stumble But we learn from our mistakes And we keep looking for the sun.